If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me uh, to our scripture reading from the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some provided in the rack in front of you. You can find our text on page 810. 810 has our passage. It is Matthew 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. Just a few verses uh, but they are some of the most powerful verses in the Gospel of Matthew. They're also uh, some of the most uh, argued over uh, verses uh, in his Gospel. Uh, we are preaching through uh, Matthew, and we have come to uh, this first major section of teaching, and commonly known, of course, as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is, I believe, our third sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and here we really get down uh, into the, the theme, the driving theme of this sermon, uh, that is uh, the law of God, the righteousness of God, and how Jesus relates with those two things uh, in this teaching. So if you give your attention with me to the co- your copy of God's word, we'll be reading Matthew 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Lord, we are aiming this morning as your people to hear and obey your word. But we confess this seems to lay a burden on us, a burden we cannot bear. And so, God, I pray in this preaching of Jesus that we will hear the gospel of grace come through loud and clear. And that as we uphold the righteous requirements of the law and the righteousness of our Savior, O God, we would leave this place rejoicing in the gift that he is to us, the gift that he has given to us. Speak to us, O God, in these few minutes, for your people are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, a friend told me that he had found the secret to happiness. And I thought, well, I got to hear this. I mean, wouldn't you want to hear the secret to happiness? And I thought, well, maybe he has found some new religion that will make everyone who follows it always happy the rest of the days of their lives. Maybe he'd found some financial trick or secret that meant he always had all the the money he needed and he was always happy for the rest of his life maybe he found some relationship or some secret I didn't know what it was he had this gleam in his eye and he said the secret to happiness is you always have low expectations (laughs) I I confess uh, I had higher expectations of that answer uh, than he gave me What did he mean by that? He meant if you go through life never having expectations of anyone or anything, then you can't be disappointed. As if sort of happiness equals the the absence of disappointment in life, right? I think we would agree that there's a whole lot more to happiness 
than that. If this equation is true, however, if his thesis is true that low expectations leads to happiness, then the Bible must lead to incredible unhappiness. Because the Bible is a book of incredible expectations, is it not? The Bible is not a book that we read and lower our expectations of who God is and what God does and what we can get out of this life. Matthew, the author of our gospel, the one that records for us the early life of Jesus and then records so faithfully this Sermon on the Mount, he sets the expectations for the guy who is to come sky high. When we read the first few chapters in Matthew, which we have done this year, we are not thinking, well, I guess an ordinary person is going to show up for us. No, we are expecting God himself to appear. And then when Jesus comes and we begin to read his own words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not look at Matthew and say, man, he had high hopes for me, but y'all just need to temper your expectations, right? No, it's the other way around. He raises the bar of expectation higher than Matthew had even said it. Again, if we're following my friend's secret to happiness, we are going to be utterly disappointed about who Jesus is and what Jesus actually does. Except, as we're going to read in this text and in the Gospel of Matthew, he came to fulfill every single expectation of him. That's what I want you to see this morning. Simply, beautifully, I think, Jesus came to fulfill every expectation of the Old Testament. Every expectation, every one of them, Jesus has come to fulfill. And in that fulfillment is where we find happiness and we find joy and we find life. So what I I want to show you in these few verses is how Jesus does this. How does Jesus fulfill all of the expectations, every single one of them, in the Old Testament? I'm going to show you three ways. There, There is three ways. I just want to show them to you. He fulfills every expectation, number one, by what he does in verses 17 and 18. Number two, by what he teaches, that's in verse 19. And and finally, simply by who he is in verse 20. So how does Jesus fulfill every expectation of him? Number one, verses 17 and 18, he fulfills them by what he does. Jesus sets our expectations as he begins in verse 17, but by telling us what he has come to do. Do not think that I have come to dot, dot, dot. So he is setting an expectation of what he comes, has not come to do and what he has come to do. Apparently there might have been some discussion or some argument about why he was there in the first place. Maybe there was some, he, maybe he was foreseeing arguments in the future about why he had come in the first place. And he has come to tell us that it's not to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. A simple sentence to translate an incredibly difficult theology to understand. Let's look at it. The first thing we need to note is what he has come to not abolish, but to fulfill. And he says it's the law or the prophets. Do you note that in that sentence? The law or the prophets. Usually we read this and our mind just goes straight to the law. And skips over or the prophets or that second part of the very thing that he has come to fulfill and not abolish. 
You see, in Jesus' day, they didn't have by name, by the name of the Old Testament, right? They had the scriptures of God, which were categorized sometimes as the law, sometimes as the law, the Psalms and the prophets, or sometimes as the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus is using words to describe the scriptures that he and all of his Jewish followers and listeners knew of, a common phrase to be used was describing them or calling them as the law and the prophets, or the law or the prophets. So Jesus is simply saying here, all of the Old Testament, as we would know it today. And so when we gonna, we're going to interpret in a moment what this word fulfill means. But we already know if Jesus is talking about all the Old Testament and not merely the law, then the word fulfill can't merely mean that Jesus keeps the law. Because he's referring to a whole lot more stuff than just the law of God. We know theologically that yes, Jesus keeps God's law perfectly, never breaks a single part of it. That's part of this verse. But it's more expansive than that. He doesn't merely keep the law. He does that plus a whole lot more. He fulfills everything in the Old Testament. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, first he clarifies to us he's not going to abolish it. That word abolish is usually used physically to describe destroying a building. Right? So he's not going to destroy it. He's not going to undercut it. He's not going to throw it away. He's not going to do away with it. Maybe there were people in his days that wanted him to do that. Maybe there are people in our day that wish we could just have Jesus and not worry about all that thorny legal stuff in the Old Testament, right? But Jesus has not come to destroy the Old Testament. What has he come to do? He has come, he says in his own words, to not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But then in the next verse, he uses another word that helps us to understand what fulfill means. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law accomplished. So if we are to understand what fulfill means, we sort of need to understand it as it relates to something that Jesus accomplishes. So I think the easiest way to summarize fulfill is to say that the Old Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament law or prophets or psalms or narratives or anything else you could find they all function like arrows. Every law is an arrow pointing to Jesus. Every narrative, every story is an arrow pointing to the one that is to come. Every psalm, every song, every, every line of poetry is an arrow pointing to the one who has come to fulfill them. That which is in the old is empty without the one who is new. One author has said that the question is not, how Jesus relates to the Old Testament. Rather, it's how does the Old Testament relate to Jesus? How do we read the Old Testament without Jesus? We, frankly, we can't. We can't understand it. We can't interpret it because it is all pointing towards, culminating in the arrival of Jesus, the Christ of God, and his work in life and in death. That is the, the goal to which all of those books and all of those chapters and all of those verses are pointing. So Jesus does what the Old Testament to fulfill the law of the prophets. How does he do that? 
Well, you, you will remember already in the book of Matthew, we have come across this keyword fulfill a number of times, four, five, six times. I didn't go back and count, but a number of times we have seen this word fulfill and it never refers to a law that Jesus keeps. Usually it's a prophecy that comes just the thing that's prophesied or it is a pattern in which the saints in the Old Testament live that Jesus follows that same pattern. So we have already seen in Matthew chapter 1 that there's the prophecy that the, the, the one will be born to a virgin. We see that fulfilled in Jesus. We see his name will be called Emmanuel in that same prophecy. It's fulfilled in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, remember Jesus escapes uh, the, the, the threat of Herod and he goes to Egypt and he comes out of Egypt. And Matthew tells us the word is fulfilled out of Egypt. I have called my son. Well, that's not a, a law that Jesus keeps. That's a pattern that he follows because that's where God's people are brought out of Egypt. And Jesus goes on that same journey with him, as it were. He's called a Nazarene to fulfill God's word, which we saw means that he will be disgraced and humiliated as the people of God often were. He's baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That is to do everything that God has planned for him to do. He even goes, we saw a couple weeks ago, north to live in Capernaum amongst the outsiders. That that sort of outside area of Israel that reminds them of the exile. And that Jesus will lead the people of God in a new return from the exile. All of these prophecies in the Old Testament, all of these patterns that the people of God follow and live, all of the plans of God shown forth in every word of the Old Testament, Jesus is telling us that it all points to him. And he fulfills all of it. This includes keeping God's law, but it is so much more than just that. In fact, he's not even done keeping it. Look at verse 18. I've already read this, but look at it with, from a different angle. He says, until heaven and earth pass away. That's referring to the end of this age. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he seems to be telling us that between now and his return, there are things from the Old Testament that Jesus still is going to fulfill. That there remains work for him to do, work for him to accomplish. There remains patterns for him to fulfill, prophecies for him to fulfill. That's all coming before the end of the age. And it's not just the big stuff. That's this language of, of, uh, he he says, an, an iota or a dot. Those are just the tiniest little markings in the Hebrew language. And so you can think about crossing a T and dotting an I. Those tiny little, that you could think, well, What's the big deal if I write a whole letter and forget to dot one of my I's? That's not that big of a deal. But Jesus is saying that he fulfills every last part of the Old Testament, even the dot on the I, right? None of it will go ignored or unfulfilled. This means that there's still things to come that he has yet to do. In this moment when he preaches this sermon, I think what's in his mind is the suffering that he's going to endure. That he knows that Isaiah prophesies a suffering servant who will bear the the marks and the stripes and the wounds for his people. It means the resurrection. When God promises he will not abandon the soul of his king, 
to death itself. It means his reign on earth when Isaiah promises that his word will go out and it will not return to him void. It means that the promises that come to us in the Psalms and in Isaiah chapter 2, that that God's house on the mountain of God, to it all of the nations of the world will come. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen before the end of the age. The foretelling that all of the prophets end with the glorious reign of the Messiah, when all of their weapons will turn uh, into plows, that they will have abundance of wine, that they will have abundance of livestock, that the war will be no more, that that final fulfillment that all of the prophets look to will come to be at the return of Jesus, when he will wipe away every tear and he will be with us as our God. All of that looking forward to the return of Christ. You see, to read the Old Testament, as an author once said, It's like going into an unfamiliar room with the lights off (laughs) and you're trying to find the light switch and you're bumping into things and you're tripping over coffee tables and you don't know where this door leads to and then finally you get to the light switch and you turn it on and boom, the room is flooded with light and everything makes sense all of a sudden. You know what that thing is that you sort of saw in the darkness but you didn't recognize it until now. All of it is flooded with the light of Jesus. And he is telling his hearers that without him, reading God's scriptures is like stumbling around in a dark room. But to read it in the light of Christ is to see that it all points to him. That every expectation of God's word is fulfilled in Jesus. That when we read the story of Adam and Eve in the beginning and we see that our forefathers utterly failed in keeping the righteous requirements of God's law. When we see Adam and Eve's crushing defeat in the garden, we know that God is sending a second Adam. One that we already read about in the desert who did not give in to the temptations of the evil one. We just preached last year in the book of Genesis and we saw a righteous but fallen Abraham who lived by faith in a fallen world and who led his family into the promised land of God, although he never quite reached there in this life. We saw that Jesus is the new and better Abraham. He is the one who perfectly lives by faith in leading and guiding the people of God. We see that Moses is the new and Jesus rather is the new and better Moses who leads his people not out of physical bondage, but out of spiritual bondage. That he leads us through the wilderness of this life and he will lead us where Moses failed, into the promised land of God. The Old Testament talks of the prophets who speak God's word faithfully and yet they are attacked and persecuted for it. Well, That's the work of Jesus that brings to us the message of God, though he is hated and persecuted for it. The Old Testament speaks of priests, of the the holy men of old who would offer sacrifices over and over and over again for their own sins and for the sin of their people. Well, Jesus is the new and better priest who stands before God offering sacrifices for your sin. But it's not over and over again. It's once and for all because he doesn't offer lambs or grain. He offers himself. He is, as John says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of the kings in the Old Testament 
who led God's people, some better than others, but all as fallen men. Jesus is the new and better king. He is the new and better David. His kingdom will last forever. It is one of righteousness and justice and peace. And the greatest promise of all in the Old Testament is that God will be with his people, just as he was in the Garden of Eden, and we will be with him, comes to fulfillment in Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The secret, y'all, the secret to happiness is not downplaying the promises of God's word. It is reading every one of them and believing that they are true in Jesus, the Messiah of God. By what he does, he turns on the light in the dark room of the Old Testament and he turns on the light in our hearts. That we might see this Savior and believe in him as the fulfillment of everything promised in God's word. How does Jesus fulfill every expectation? Well, first, by what he does. It's just that simple, by what he does. But there's more. There's so much more. He also fulfills God's expectations by what he teaches in verse 19. He is a teacher in these verses. We're about to get into a section of Matthew that is familiar to many of you. It's sort of a form of antithesis or contrast. We have six topics we're going to cover. My plan, Lord willing, is to cover them in the next three weeks. Two topics a week for the next three weeks. And they all begin, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus kind of draws this contrast. It's not really with the Old Testament. It seems at first like it might be the Old Testament. We're going to get to it next week about what he actually draws a contrast with. But Jesus is teaching in ways that fulfill the Old Testament. Do you remember how he began the Sermon on the Mount? He went to a mount. (laughs) He went up on a mountain, a place where God meets with his people throughout his word. He sat down, which seems kind of strange to us, but that's a position of authority for him to come and teach. He says he will say over the rest of chapter 5 numerous times, you have heard it written, but I say to you. You see, he's not just another Moses. He is a new and better Moses. Moses went up to a mountain and he brought down the law of God. He was just the mouthpiece of God. Jesus goes up to the mountain and he speaks on his own authority. He says, I say to you, he comes with all divine authority to give the law. So if the law points to Jesus, then we obey the law, number one, by obeying him. There is no division between Jesus and the law of God. I don't know if you've ever heard that before or if you have thought that. It is entirely wrong. The law of God is perfect and righteous and holy. It reflects the perfection and the justice and the holiness of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus keeps every one of God's law. They are not a burden to him. He keeps them naturally, as it were, out of his own righteousness. And he teaches it to us. Now the question is, what do we do with God's law? What do we do with all of these commandments? Well, look what he tells us uh, down in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them 
and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, a couple contrasts here. Uh, The first one that jumps off the page is, are there really greater and lesser places in the kingdom of heaven? And I, I think that's what he's saying. I don't exactly know what that means by greater or lesser places in the kingdom of heaven. Some people think that's only in this world. that Those who sort of exhibit the fruit of righteousness in their life will be exalted more in this life than those who don't. I think it probably refers to God's everlasting kingdom. And that in some way that we don't quite understand, there will be distinctions of places in heaven. I don't know what that looks like, so I don't don't want to go too much deeper there. But I do want to say that even though that's true, there still will not be any disappointments in heaven. (laughs) No one's going to get to heaven and think, man, I wish I had a seat a little bit closer. (laughs) Right? The reality is heaven is a place where there is no more sin. And so there is no more jealousy and there's no more coveting. There's no more tears and there's no more grief and there's no more mourning. Every one of us will be fully satisfied by the presence and the glory of God for all of eternity. The other thing to be clear here is that any type of distinction there may or may not be in the kingdom of heaven is all of grace, the grace of God. Because anything we do, any righteousness that we exhibit in this life is merely the gift of grace. We don't bring it up out of ourselves. (laughs) It is produced in us as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not sort of trying to give a dynamic within the kingdom of heaven. What he's trying to do is explain the seriousness of the law of God. Okay? He does that with another contrast between greater and lesser commandments. He seems to be saying here that there are some of these commandments that are lesser or lower and others that are greater. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. What does it mean to be a, a lesser or the least of the commandments? Well, he says later in scripture, Jesus says uh, that some commandments are weightier than others. All right. So you might think to yourself, oh, good. I don't have to keep all of them. I just have to figure out what the weighty ones are and I'll keep those. I just keep the ones, the top three he really cares about and everything else can just slide. Well, that, that's not his point. He says, whoever keeps the, the least of these. He's identifying the keeping or the relaxing of all of his commandments all the way down to what seems to us to be the most insignificant. And that brings him to his main point in this verse, which is the contrast between relaxing and doing and teaching. Right? He's trying to say, he is saying, don't relax God's law. Don't relax the commandments. To relax a commandment, we might just say simply to break it, or is to set it aside, or it is to ignore it as if it has no application to us today. And the opposite of relaxing a commandment is doing it, right? Is keeping it. You will notice, he says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in heaven. This is sort of a side note. But a lot of us are good at teaching them (laughs) and not so good at doing them. You notice the order, whoever does and teaches. If we're not doing, then we're definitely not teaching. So Jesus is communicating to us in this verse, don't 
downplay and relax the law of God. Many of you have an, an impulse to downplay God's law. And you may be tempted to think grace equals no law, right? Grace is the xing out, the crossing out of the law of God. And Jesus is telling us that's just not the case. But he is telling us, he's telling his people that God's law, all of it, endures today. That the greatest of the least commandments, they endure today. Now we only understand them through the lens of Jesus teaching them. If we don't, if we only go to the old and we don't understand what Jesus says in the new, then we are guilty of relaxing his commandments. So he is telling us to resist the impulse to downplay his law. Because it still applies, it is still righteous, and it is still good. But there's more than one way to relax the law of God. We can kind of ignore it. Act like it doesn't apply to us. That's one way. The other way is to use God's law wrongly. To use it as the very means to make us righteous. If we think that our keeping of God's law is the way in which he has promised us that we will become righteous, then we have grossly perverted the purpose of his law. And I want you to see that in our final point. And that is that Jesus shows us how he fulfills every expectation of the Old Testament, not only by what he does, not only by what he teaches, but most importantly, verse 20, by who he is. By who he is. The big question, as we have learned about the kingdom of heaven, is how do we get in? (laughs) How do we get there? How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? And the answer to that in one word is righteousness. Righteousness is the means by which we enter the kingdom of heaven. That is holiness and righteousness in who we are. Law is the means by which we get into heaven. What does it mean to be righteous? What is the standard of our righteousness. Well, for his hearers in his day, the people who were righteous were called the scribes and the Pharisees. If you were going to look around and you say, who's the righteous one here? It would be the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day. Now, what made them righteous in the eyes of the world, in a sense? What made them righteous is that they were really good at following the rules, Like really, really good at following the rule. I mean, they followed rules that everybody else didn't even know existed. They would search for rules upon rules to make sure they followed all of them. They did not need to be warned about the least of the commandments or the 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 crossing the T and dotting the I. No, they were actually really good at that. They were actually so good at keeping God's law that they would put an extra layer of laws around the law that God gave just to make sure they didn't accidentally break the law of God. When our kids were growing up, uh, we lived on a street that was relatively busy, and so we had a pretty basic parenting rule. Don't go in the street. I think that was a basic good rule as a parent, right? You're not allowed in the street. 
But we also didn't want our young kids playing inches from the street. And so we gave them another line. It was this crack running across our driveway. We said, you can't cross that crack. That's actually your new rule. Now, there was nothing wrong with that remainder of the driveway until you got to the road. It was just really dangerous for our kids, right? So we created this extra law to put on them. Now, as I reflect on it, I think that's good parenting. I think. It was, it's my rule, so it must be good parenting, right? <laughs> but it's also really bad theology. It's bad theology to add extra laws to the law of God. And the Pharisees could be pretty good at that. So you couldn't actually tell where God's law ended and man's law began. And they were so strict about this that really they were the only ones that had the time and the energy and the knowledge to keep it all. So the hearers of Jesus are thinking, my righteousness, verse 20, must exceed that righteousness? That's crazy. I could never, I could never live like that. I could never achieve that. Who could ever exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, Jesus is about to continue his sermon, and he's about to give us the true standard of righteousness. Because the true standard he's about to show us is not about keeping the external laws. It is about the righteousness of your heart. Because he's about to say, yeah, sure, you haven't committed murder, but... Have you ever been angry at someone? Then you've broken the sixth commandment. Sure, you haven't committed adultery, but have you ever lusted in your heart? You've broken the seventh commandment. It's as if Jesus is telling us the external righteousness is not all there is. In fact, what matters is an internal righteousness of the heart, which might cause us to think, well, that's great news. I can just throw out the law and look within, and I can focus on my inner heart and my inner life and my inner righteousness. But y'all, if we're honest with ourselves and we look within, do we really find a righteous heart? (laughs) Do we find something that we are glad to bring to God and say, I am relieved that you don't look on my rule following. You look on my heart because it's pure. (laughs) Of course we don't think that. Jesus is demanding a righteousness that is equivalent to perfect holiness. And it is not a holiness in what we do or what we say. It is a holiness in who we are. It is a holiness that emanates out of our heart. And if that's the standard, then there's none of us who keeps it. You remember when you were a kid and you wanted to ride those rides at the fair or at Dollywood and they had the sign that said you have to be this tall to ride. And you would get up to that sign and you would stretch out and you would get on your toes as high as you could. Just hopefully you would reach that standard to get in to the ride. The Pharisees are really good at that. I mean, the Pharisees, I think they would, they'd put some platform shoes on, right? They'd moose up their hair that morning. They were good to reach that standard that nobody else could. And as if Jesus comes along and takes that, you must be this tall to ride sign and flings it 100 feet in the air. And he says, you really want to go in, you really want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be that righteous. Way, way up there. The only one who meets this righteous standard is Jesus. Maybe we are good at keeping external laws, maybe. Maybe we can get really good like the Pharisees 
And we can have lists of laws and laws upon laws, and we can check them all off at night when we're done with our day. And Jesus says, if that's the case, you're not even close. Because look within at your heart. That's from which your sin comes. So this verse is both incredible news about Jesus, and it is devastating news about us. Devastating. This doesn't mean, man, I'm just going to be a little bit better. I'm just going to be nicer this week. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to stop lusting. I'm going to stop being angry. And when I check that off at the end of the week, I have exceeded the righteousness of those hypocritical Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, you're not even close. (laughs) He alone keeps the righteous standard. So what is he telling us? Well, number one, he is afflicting those of us who are comfortable. He is identifying the hearers who think they can do it. I doubt any of you came in here thinking, yeah, I've kept enough rules this week. I'm good. (laughs) But there is hearts. It doesn't look to Jesus but argues our own case based on our own righteousness. And Jesus' words blow that out of the water. He says in Matthew chapter 23, he's bringing more woes on the Pharisees. He says in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Those are his words to those who think they can do it on their own. I invite you to take a moment this morning and think if you think you can do it on your own. I mean, you're here at church. So you have some sense of the holy, you have some sense of God, but you may have just been dragged here by your spouse or by your parents and you just can't wait for the preacher to finally be done. (laughs) And you think maybe this Bible is telling me just to do a little bit more, just to be a little bit better, just to find the right equation to keep the right amount of the right kind of laws and I'll be good before God. If that is you, then Jesus is coming to crush your expectation of your own righteousness. But in the same breath, in the same sermon, in the same action by which he afflicts the comfortable, he also comforts the afflicted. Those who are afflicted by our own sin and guilt. Those who are beaten down and weighed down by the crushing weight of a law that we know outside or inside we cannot ever keep. And sometimes we wish Jesus would just lower the standard of his law. If it was just a little bit lower, then we could all make it. If it's a little bit lower, I could keep it and make him happy. Instead, he raises the standard to perfection. And then he goes and keeps it himself. Then he goes, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You can't keep this requirement, but he has. And he invites you, and he calls you 
to trust in him, to turn to him, to repent of your law breaking and trust him and his law keeping. The title of this sermon, you may have noticed, is The Christ Key. It's taken from an author named Chad Bird who's written a book about how we see Jesus in the Old Testament. And the title of the book is The Christ Key. He says, because Jesus unlocks the Old Testament. Because he unlocks the meaning of all of the verses. He unlocks the meaning of the law. He unlocks all of the prophets. And in this verse, we learn that he unlocks the kingdom of heaven by fulfilling all of those requirements. Believe in him today. Rest not in your own works, but rest in his righteousness. For he alone is the one who fulfills all the law and all of the prophets. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know how we struggle at times with this teaching. I've done better at keeping your requirements than they have. Lord, we repent of that attitude this morning. We repent of the sin of claiming our own righteousness. Pattern and every expectation of your word. That Jesus is all of who your word says he is and more. That every promise is yes and amen in him. Lord, give us the gift of faith to trust him today. Give us the gift of faith in Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.